production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of, con of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Friday, February 17th, and I am Telian J. Thomas, Chief Operating and Relationship Officer at Jumpstart. Today's forum is the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Forum on the Philanthropic Spirit and Community Leadership and we will be discussing how to advance racial equity through the power of black giving. It is my distinct honor to introduce our guest, Mayor Cleveland, excuse me, Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb, who will be joined in conversation with our moderator, Connie Hill Johnson, chairperson for the Cleveland Foundation. So often the narrative paints black people as the beneficiaries of philanthropy rather than the benefactors, but the numbers tell a different story. African-Americans give 8.6% of their discretionary income to charity, more than any other racial group in America. Nearly two-thirds of African-American households donate to charity totaling 11 billion each year. In the black community, there is a culture of philanthropy and community investment. Their collective generosity aligns in three primary categories. Cornerstone, giving higher education and the arts to grow minds and preserve the culture. Kinship, donating to organizations directly serving the black community, meeting basic needs and elevating their social, emotional and economic conditions. And sanctified, supporting the black church, generationally sustaining their faith traditions while supporting the ministry. In 2019, the Soul of Philanthropy Cleveland vividly displayed the power of African-American philanthropy in our region through a collection of historic and contemporary stories and images. Community leaders, activists, and philanthropists collaborated to create an artistic display that educated audiences about the rich history of black charitable giving and to tell their stories of philanthropy and empower communities of color. The exhibit, Celebrate Those Who Give Black, centered Cleveland in a national conversation on black giving, humanity, and transformational change. The Soul of Philanthropy Cleveland inspired the establishment of the Cleveland Black Equity and Humanity Fund, which supports and facilitates investment in causes and issues that promote black-led social and economic change throughout Northeast Ohio. Today, we will explore how we can help bolster equitable outcomes and opportunities for Northeast Ohio's community using the power of black giving. If you have a question for our guest, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Mayor Justin Bibb and Chairperson Connie Hill Johnson. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. 
I am um, tremendously excited and humbled and honored to be here. I look out over this room and I've been to many forums and I don't know how many I've been to where it has been packed out like this. So I know it's all because of our wonderful no, mayor no, no, who is here. No, no. Um, and so what a, what a, a privilege to, to be able to talk to you. But um, I first want to give a shout out since Teleandre gave uh, a wonderful introduction to those individuals in this room who partnered with the Soul of Philanthropy Cleveland. Uh, so could you just stand real quick? Every volunteer, every person who partnered with the Soul of Philanthropy Cleveland. So that was just the beginning of wanting to have ongoing conversations about uh, what black philanthropy really means and how it can be a great influencer uh, in our city in terms of uh, closing the wealth gap and working on so many disparities. But before we start, I just wanted to do a little icebreaker. Uh-oh. I always hear you talk about you're from Mount Pleasant. Yes. And most people here know I'm from... Hey, hey. Hey, hey. No shame there. Stay chance, by the way. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Hey, But that being said, I have very fond memories of growing up in Glenville. So if I asked you what is something about growing up in Mount Pleasant that still resonates with you, from whether it's from your childhood, and think back to your youth, not as an adult after you went to college and came back home. What still rings that just warms your heart about your neighborhood? So I remember when my mom allowed me to buy my first bike. I think I was six or seven years old. And we walked to uh, East 131st Street. There was an old bike store. I bought my first Huffy bike. Mm. <laughs> now, for the first couple of weeks, I had to use training wheels, you know? <laughs> But then when, when I learned how to ride that bike, I was going up and down, Angeles, Lenacrave, Barlett. And then back then, so where I grew up, and my neighbor, Monique is here, by the way, my neighbor who I grew up with, there's a corner store right by the house I grew up in, and we would get old Fago pop cans and put them in the wheels. And um, I drove my bike all the way to Randall Park Mall. <laughs> the, the, Mo, Monique know about this. The, the, the whooping I got when I got home, boy. Mama Bibb says, never again will you ever do that. that. That's my favorite memory. That's my favorite memory. That's a good one. That's a good one. I don't know if I can top that, but, but mine is kind of twofold. I purchased my very first 45. I am older than this man here. Um, there was a record store. Felton, right over from the Glenville Library. And I would walk down Thornhill Drive, which turned into 120th Street, and there was a little record store right on the corner. And I bought my, purchased my first Jackson 545. <laughs> that was the biggest treat of my life, to have Michael Jackson playing in my basement. That was one. The other was, um, for those Glenville folks, we used to have what was called the Glenville Festival. Huh. And it was right next door to the Y, the YWCA, which isn't there. And so the community as a whole, every summer, could not wait until the Glenville Festival. Wow. 
and I would walk and I'd cut over and walk past Glenville High School and down 113th Street and cut over through the park to go to that festival. And you would see everybody who was anybody who grew up in the neighborhood. Even people who had moved away came back. I love that. So every time I drive down St. Clair and I look over at that old field, I think. Those memories. Oh, gosh, the Glenville Festival. So I just Hopefully kind of break a lot of hearts at those festivals. No, no, oh, no, 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 sink in for folks that are here, and it lays really the context for this conversation. Um, there's no greater indicator of racial inequity than the gap in wealth between black and white Americans. Black full-time workers on average between the ages of 25 and 34 made an average of $39,820 over the last few years, compared to $52,750 for white workers. Additionally, the total assets of black households averaged 206,966 compared to white households whose total average was 1,101,000. Despite the systemic barriers to building wealth and attaining economic mobility in the U.S., the black community, the African-American community, has consistently embraced a philosophy and habit of giving in monetary in non-monetary ways. Black households, as she said, give 25% more of their income annually than white households. Nearly two-thirds of African-American households donate to organizations and causes, totaling $11 billion each. Perhaps black philanthropy is a response to the collective understanding of barriers that have existed over centuries, underscored by a deep sense of accountability to and a deep love of community. Even so, most African Americans discount their roles as donors, mm -hmm. despite the fact that they may have a lifelong history of giving of their time, talent, and treasure in many ways. So I wanted to set that as, as the foundation so that everyone here can think about, we are centering this conversation on people that look like me and Justin mm -hmm. um, in our community and how we can have a greater impact and how black philanthropy can be used to address many of the ills of our society in the city of Cleveland. So with that being said, how can the intersection, do you think, of equity and giving black help further bolster equitable outcomes and opportunities for people here in Cleveland? Well, I first want to just unpack that, that frame you, you laid out for us. And my first reaction was, for black folks, giving and philanthropy is a state of being, not an extracurricular activity. Mm -hmm. mm. So what do I mean by that? I think about my upbringing in, in, in this city where both of my grandparents, my grandma Sarah, my grandma Irene, if they only made $100 that week, at least 75 was going to the church. Mm. They would say, sow a seed, because mm -hmm. you never know when you're going to need that seed to come back to, to you tenfold. Right. And you know, that's why, growing up in the black church, I see my grandma's pastor here, Dr. Hedgeman here, she would just give me $5 mm -hmm. 
every Sunday to show me the importance of giving as a kid. And so it was about survival. And I believe that giving is in the DNA of black people. However, I think the issue we see in, in this country right now is we don't understand how giving comes in multiple forms and fashions. It's just not about monetary donations. Mm -hmm. It's about service. I remember vividly, if I couldn't get a hot meal because my grandma or mom wasn't home, I'd go across the street to Miss Smith's house. She would make sure I got something to eat. We need to do a better job of uplifting those stories and centering the work that our foundations do, that our nonprofits do, in that sense of giving, particularly in the black community, because it's not an extracurricular activity for us. It's inherent in our DNA. But how do we leverage that? How do we, as you say, call it out, mm -hmm. lift it up, and recognize it for what it is so that it will even aid in lifting Cleveland? We have mm. been told, and we know this, that we're one of the poorest Big cities. I hear you country. say that all the time. Second poorest. Second poorest big city. Yeah. And so how do we shift that? How do we as blacks in our philanthropic heartbeat uh, partner with you in shifting that? Mm. Well, let's talk about it on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. OK. Uh, one of the things that I'm dealing with now is how do we inspire and train and recruit uh, the next generation of police officers in our city? Um, and, you know, my father, it, to me, is the best example of, of the importance of this. You know, uh, my dad grew up in, in the Huff neighborhood, um, and he went to go serve in Vietnam, came back, and said, I wanted to be in law enforcement. And he went to Tri-C, to the fire academy and the police academy at Tri-C, and that was our pathway to the middle class. That's how we broke the cycle of poverty in my family. Uh, it didn't require a very complicated government policy program. It was, how do we identify talent in our neighborhoods? How do we make sure there's a pipeline and exposing them to mm -hmm. what's possible? Mm -hmm. That's a big part of it. But how do we center the, the programmatic giving and programs we're creating with their voices, with their lived experience in mind, how are they reflected on the boards of our foundations? <laughs> how, how are they reflected on, on our boards and, and their staffs of major organizations in our community? And I think that, that's a big part of it yeah. long term. Well, you know, in sitting up, sitting up here with you and I look around the room, um, I think we all can say that we have recognized that there's been a shift in the city of Cleveland. Absolutely that there's been a shift in the pigmentation of those who are now leading mm -hmm. many of our organizations. And for that, I think we need to uh, applaud um, as, we, as we talk about um, diversity and inclusiveness. But with that being said, those of us in these positions need to be very focused and intentional, as you said, mm -hmm. about, I hate to use this cliche, reaching back yeah. and recognizing that some of those folks I grew up in Glenville with, and some of those folks you grew up in, in Mount Pleasant still there. are still there. Yeah. 
And so how do we collectively, and, the, and, and those of us who are giving of our time, talent, treasure, yeah. and I don't know if Belva is here, but she added a fourth one saying, and our testimony, That's right. um, yeah. how do we really move the needle yeah. so that when we go back to the neighborhood, yeah. we're seeing fewer and fewer folks. And I think it's time for us to, as we celebrate what I call Black Excellence Month, Black History Month, I think it's time for us to redefine what the black American dream is. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna let you. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry. The floor is yours. Um, <clears throat> you know, for a long time, we were taught that go off to college, go to grad school, get a good paying job, never come back to Cleveland. Mm. Or if you do come back, set up shop in Twinsburg, Solon, Brad and all. And my brother Mordecai can speak to this. For our generation, it's time for us to buy back the block and build back the block in the inner city of Cleveland. Right. And when you think about the racial wealth gap, we know that home ownership is the biggest thing we can do to close the racial wealth gap in this country. That's why uh, I'm so excited about our forthcoming plans that we have for the east side of Cleveland, because if we can build back the block on Kinsman and Buckeye and Lee Harvard, there's a whole new generation of wealth that can be created right in our community. And I, I get jealous when I travel in New York, I walk up Malcolm X Avenue in Harlem, and I see this amazing black history, but also amazing black wealth being created. Mm -hmm. That same level of innovation and, and culture can be created on Kinsman. Right, right. Right. But I think what's happened is I think we failed to have imagination about what's possible in our city for far too long. And I think for a long time, we suffer from a poverty of ambition. We're afraid to take risk. We're afraid to fail. We're afraid to step out on faith because it's taboo when you do that if, you don't, or if you're not successful here. It's one of the big reasons why I ran for mayor. I had nothing to lose. Um, and it's why I'm so focused on taking big risks now for our city, because if we don't take those risks now, we may never get this moment ever again as a city, mm. particularly with the black leadership we have in our community. There we go. Um, so, you know, a shout out to, to my colleagues at the Cleveland Foundation and where we were just last night, and I wish I had brought the brochure, but we were at an event, and Telly was there, to talk about what is coming called Black Avenue. I love that. And what an experience to be able to talk about rebirthing 70-something and 55th, mm -hmm. which were, when my parents were here in their younger days, was the hopping, popping spot. Not only for entertainment, but for thriving black businesses. Mm -hmm. And so just to hear the conversation around the possibility of a Black Avenue. Mm. That is the name, folks. Black Avenue coming back, a cultural district, a business district, um, a place where residents want to live. And so that's very much in line with what you're talking yeah. about yeah. Um, and, and taking and those risks. And shout out to, to, to Ron Richards and the entire team at the Cleveland Foundation. Think about the importance of, the, of what they're doing. The world's first community foundation right here in Cleveland has made the conscious choice to say we are not going to stay in the ivory tower of the city, we're going to the neighborhood. To the neighborhood. And so 
I, I think it's an important example of how philanthropy can be that early adopter to lead that kind of community innovation. And uh, I know our friends at Gunn are thinking about the same thing. <laughs> I see Tony's in the audience. And um, I got a lot of vacant land on the east side, <laughs> brother. So when you're ready to make that deal, call you. the red room's wide open for you and your team. <laughs> so here we are at a time when politics are so polarizing. Mm -hmm. In the minds of some, there is a connection between party affiliation and the emphasis on social outcomes of one party or the focus on economic outputs by another party. What do you believe, Mayor Bibb? How are philanthropy and economics intertwined, and do they cross political and racial barriers? It absolutely is. I would say a couple of things about this question. Um, I think the one conversation we must have in this city about giving is political giving. Mm. So we are a majority black city. Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the best ways to affect change is to elect people who look like you, who share your lived experience, who share your values. It is not easy to run for office. It takes what? Money. And for us as a people, at the local level and the national level, we must use our money to elect candidates who share our values. So the work that Quentin and Stephanie James are doing at the Collective Pack, huge. I wouldn't have gotten elected mayor without many black donors in this room who sacrificed $5,000 checks to, to get help elect the no-name candidate, mm -hmm. right? That money goes a long way. And it's important that we think differently about the power of political giving just as well as other parts of giving in our community. And so then, as, as we talk about political giving and, and politics in general, I'm always dismayed that when it's time to vote on local matters, yeah. our numbers here are abysmal. Yeah. They're abysmal. And so how do we, again, from a philanthropic standpoint, and even an equity standpoint, how do we shift that? What Do we need to put you back out knocking on doors again well, I haven't, when the I haven't next stopped. local election I comes stopped. up? I haven't stopped. But how, how, do, how do we get, yeah. particularly our young adults, yeah. and even some of our old adults, to recognize that all politics is local, mm -hmm. from who's on the school board to who's in city council yeah. um, to who's at the state level, but we seem to show up only for the presidential election. Yeah. Well, at, at the state, this is why electing members of the legislature who understand the, the importance of voting is critical. You know, just last year, this state passed a law, one of the most racist voting laws in the country, right here in Ohio. Yeah. That's a problem. And we don't vote for our state legislature in the ways that we should be voting mm -hmm. right now. Columbus is hamstringing us in many ways that we are just blind to uh, as, a, as a community. The other thing I would say, and I'm so inspired by the work of Cleveland Votes that Erica Anthony is leading, um, democracy is broken. I'm giving a round of applause. We, we have a democracy problem in this city. There's a lack of trust. There's a lack of hope. Uh, we've been trying to disrupt how we think about this um, in, in my office through the work we want to do with participatory budgeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have proposed putting $5.5 million from the American Rescue Plan uh, to support participatory budgeting in Cleveland. It's been proven 
from Boston to New York to Philly, that it allows more people to get involved in the political process. It gives them a say on how city money is spent. And I think this would be a good way to get more people involved, to show that your voice and your vote matters, not just in terms of trash collection, but police reform. Mm -hmm. All those things play a role. And I think we, uh, both in government and philanthropy, must continue to work together to invest in innovative, disruptive things that we believe could restore democracy right in our city. So you went down the path of policing. So I'm going to go down that path with you for a minute. I read an article in Sunday's paper. Mm -hmm. Don't remember the names, and it's good that I don't mention the names. But as we talk about policing and police reform and wanting our community to get involved, yeah. you know, you see something, say something. Read an article about a young man, and now that we are in open carry state, which I don't know how I feel about, but nobody wants to hear my opinion. Um, gentleman was policing his neighborhood. Uh, yeah. And um, being from Glenville, I'm reading it, and he was in Glenville. So Kevin and I were trying to figure out, okay, what drugstore was he behind? Was he there on this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Long story short, though, um, somebody called the mm -hmm. cops because he was walking down the street, yeah. you know, trying to make sure everything was cool, and surrounded by cops who told him to put his gun down. Ended up going to jail. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting because one of the police officers said to him, or said to, the, to her fellow cops is, he's right, this is an open carry Very state. Yeah. And he's right, he can walk around with his gun. Mm -hmm. And we might be looking at a lawsuit. This was one voice of a cop saying this to their peers. And so of course, as a black woman, and as you talked about, you know, we, we see things through our lived experiences, mm -hmm. our lived experiences. And so I thought immediately, and I said to my husband, they saw a black man walking down the street with a gun. Yeah. Comment on that, because here he's saying, as I'm reading, I'm trying to do my part in my community. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to make sure the cops aren't called. If I can yeah. break up something, if I can get kids to safe housing or in a safe, safe place, but it didn't work out well. No. So, so where do we find that balance between those of us who want the best in our communities and don't want to see a Memphis um, and want to do what we can do to still and, and bring the peace and take the tone down a bit, but a perfect example of a gentleman whose hearts, I don't know the man, mm -hmm. uh, seemed like it was in the right place, but he spent the night in jail. Um. I would say a few things. Number one, um, Antoine Tolbert does some great work in our community um, and is a prime example of the importance of elevating more grassroots voices as we have these hard conversations about uh, police reform. I think we need to use that moment, obviously what we saw disgustingly in Memphis several weeks ago, um, as a way to show that not just in Cleveland but across the country we have a lot more work to do in terms of the victimization and the trauma that black bodies experience uh, when they interact with law enforcement. Um, it's one of the hardest parts of my job as mayor, trying to change a culture uh, to ensure that we not only have accountable but constitutionally appropriate policing, but policing that shares our values around equity, justice, to build that trust. Um, that's why I'm excited about the work we're going to see with the new uh, Community Police Commission. Mm -hmm. um, and mind you, 
This is the toughest independent civilian oversight board in America, right here in Cleveland. But this is a 100-year problem we've been dealing with in this city. So much so that the Cleveland Foundation did a report about this 100 years ago. And, and so we, we are nowhere near where we need to be, but we have made progress as a city since we uh, lost our brother, Tamir Rice. I mean, Cleveland is the only city in America that's been under two consecutive consent decrees. But since the consent decree, we've seen dramatic uh, declines in use of force, incidences between police and residents. We've seen declines in complaints against police uh, with residents. And so we're making progress. But I think the best way to solve the problem is to be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Join law enforcement. Join the CPC. Continue to advocate for the importance of constitutionally appropriate policing because we can't solve it unless our people are a part of the solution long term. So let me dig a little deeper because even in saying that, we still recognize that whether we're talking about crime mm -hmm. or whatever in our communities, and I'm specifically again talking about the black community, it still comes back to um, you know joblessness, yeah. homelessness, health disparities. Um, the wealth gap. Yeah. So for black people, we were all raised that owning a home is your first mm -hmm. big move out of poverty, if you will. But yet we continue to read about and see bubbling up redlining mm -hmm. um, that is occurring all over. In different forms. And in different forms. It may not be as, as obvious as it was years ago, mm -hmm. um, but it still re rears its ugly head. Yeah. And it rears its ugly head even in our city. And so again, where do we go with that? Mm -hmm. where, where do we go with that in our financial institutions? Yeah, I, I, uh, I recently saw a, a clear example of this. We were trying to do some work to support uh, black small businesses right on Kinsman and they talked about their insurance problem. So uh, let me give you a deep dive on this. Insurance companies like Progressive, Nationwide, et cetera, will upcharge or not even insure certain companies in certain black neighborhoods in Cleveland. But a couple of blocks up the street in Shaker, yep. they get insurance. So if you want to start a business on Kinsman, you might not be able to do it because, because insurance. lack of insurance. Yeah. The other thing is uh, we saw this major outcry from almost every major bank in the country about their racial equity commitments to social justice after George Floyd. I don't know where that money went. <laughs> Me either. Now, I know, I, know, I know there are a lot of great banks doing a lot of great things, particularly in Cleveland. Um, but I say that to say we have to find a way to, to create an easier pathway for money to get to where it's needed yeah. without all the bureaucratic regulatory issues. And I, look, I'm running a large bureaucracy. I get it, <laughs> right? But we got to be innovative. Yeah. Um, one thing we're trying to do at Cleveland is to be a certified business right now in the city. You have to prove you've been in business for at least a year. To me, that makes no sense. So we're going to get rid of it. Um, or the, the bonding requirement. I see Arian from AKA Construction in the building. 
we have these uh, obtuse, outdated bonding requirements that undermines the ability for you know, black construction companies to get their fair share of these major deals. So we're gonna put construction reform on the ballot to change it in our charter, right? To give them a better pathway. And so sometimes government gets in the way yes. and sometimes the private sector gets in the way uh, for being um, too obtruse in terms of how they think about policy and how they think about the change. And you know why that happens? It's because they don't have us at the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Another good example of that is I went to, I think it was the GCP annual meeting or something a while back, and the question was raised about black-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. And a brother said, I had to fill out one application in whatever his suburb was to be a minority-owned business. Then I had to do it with the city, mm -hmm. Cleveland. Then I had to do it with the county. Then I had to do it with the state. He said, how many times do I have to prove I'm black? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, so the question is, when yeah. you talk about the bureaucracy, yeah. well, the brother just wanted to open yeah. a business. Well, this is and, why uh, I'm, I'm glad our county executive, Chris Renane's here. Yeah, we gotta, <laughs> we'll, we'll add that to our to-do list. Just check all yeah. the boxes yeah. on one application yeah. so he could get started. And it's he was six problem. months, eight months down the road. Yeah filling out yet another application. Yeah. So, yeah. Mr. Ronane and, and Mr. Bibb, <laughs> since you all are in we'll these positions, <laughs> and we need more minority-owned businesses, yes. let, make it easy so we can, yeah. you know, get boots on the ground there. Um, I think we're gonna begin to wind down, I'm looking, but I have one more quick question. Uh, you made some really difficult decisions, and by the time you leave here, it looks like you're gonna have a few more. Um, <laughs> The Cleveland Black what are you telling me? I don't know. <laughs> the Cleveland Black Equity and Humanity Fund is committed to providing equity for the black and other marginalized communities by addressing systems that create inequity. We all want the American dream, don't we? Mm -hmm. I think you've really spoken to this. We all want to begin life with a solid foundation through family and schooling. Open, obtain a good job, buy a home. We've talked about that. Not a bad vision for a productive life. Can these things really, really be a reality for black individuals living in Cleveland? Yes, I see it in this room, that's why. Okay, I thank you Mr. Bibb, Mayor Bibb. We could talk for another hour. Um, I'll say something. I, w I will say that when we did our solo philanthropy programming, um, one of the places I remembered seeing him was when we did our young black and giving back on a rooftop uh, downtown. And I remember him walking in, and this was way before he was mayor, and I'm like, oh, so you are young black and giving back, huh? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> All right, we're about to begin the Q&A with the audience. Again, I'm Telianje Thomas, Chief Operating and Relationships Officer at Jumpstart. Today, we are hearing from Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb and Connie Hill Johnson, Chairperson of the Cleveland Foundation, on the power of giving black to advance racial equity. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org or radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speakers, please tweet it 
at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And the City Club staff will try to work it into today's program. May we have the first question. In your first year, what is one thing as you look back that you would do the same, one thing you would do differently, and what was your biggest surprise? That is directed to Justin, correct? Okay. She gets off easy. She gets off easy. The mayor. Let, let, me, let me go in reverse order. Um, I would say the, the thing I would keep the same would be the sense of urgency. Um, every day I wake up in my small little one-bedroom apartment with no food in my refrigerator. I, um, it's one less day I'm going to have in office. And when I think about the gravity of the problems that we're facing in our city, it propels me every day to approach my job like tomorrow could be my last day in the job. And so every day I wake up with the sense of urgency to move the city as forward as quickly as I possibly can as mayor. I think the, the biggest surprise would be, I didn't think it would take me two days to get my email set up as mayor. <laughs> um, but that's an example of trying to modernize a 100-year-old bureaucracy for the 21st century as the first new mayor in nearly two decades. And culture change takes time. But we are trying to change the culture by biting off the elephant one bite at a time. Uh, and doing everything we can to show the hardworking 8,000 employees of our city that they matter, we care, we have your back, and we want to work with you every single day to move our community forward. If there was one thing I would change, it would be um, I spent too much time internally my first year, but I had to. I had to uh, because so much needed to get done in terms of triaging the problems internally, hiring a best-in-class management team that uh, I want to get out more in the community my first year, but um, uh, hopefully I can course correct in year two now that we've gotten everybody in place at City Hall. Yeah. Mayor, thank you very much for the work that you're doing. My fondest memory of growing up in Mount Pleasant was the presence of the village and the sense of community. And we knew that the village and the community had very high expectations mm -hmm. of us. But today I have a sense that families are becoming more isolated and their sense of the village and the community is different. So what advice would you give to young people today to help them think now about being black and giving back and actually making black philanthropy part of their DNA? Yeah. Thank you for that question. This is something I had to learn very early uh, in my upbringing in, in this city. Um, you know, my mom always told me that I would be known by the company that I kept. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at a young age, I was forced to navigate multiple worlds. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was four. So me and my mom went to live with my grandma, Sarah, on Dove in Mount Pleasant, and then my dad uh, was in Shaker. And so I was going back and forth during the week with my mom, weekend with my dad, and Shaker. And for a long time, um, a lot of the black kids in Shaker said, oh, he's too white. But the white kids said he's not black enough. He's too black, right? And so early I had to learn 
that it's okay to be by myself. It's okay to lean into my own greatness. And it's okay to seek out friends who share your same values. And I think in this society right now with TikTok and Instagram and the depression that our children are experiencing because of social media and these expectations, they don't know what it's like to be an individual. It's a lot of groupthink. We got to get back to the basics and teach our children they're great and give them their own collective voice. And for me, that sustenance came early in the black church where I found my place early. And so um, that'd be my advice. Find your why early. Learn to be okay with being by yourself because there is greatness that lies in, inside of all of us as, as young people, especially. Good afternoon. Thank you both for being here. I'm a returned citizen uh, to Cleveland. I lived in Volpe, Atlanta and Washington, D.C. During the time I was there, I did witness gentrification and what it looks like and what it feels like. On my part, I was able to buy a home, and so I was able to stay in neighborhoods that gentrified. Um, returning home to Cleveland, it appears that the land has been cleared. Uh, it appears that uh, there are new things that are happening, and it's very exciting. But my question is, how are we going to make sure that people who work for Dave's or the Rite Aid mm -hmm. are able to have a pathway to home ownership? On my part, uh, Washington, D.C. has a program called HPAP, which allowed people a grant of $60,000 to put toward. Uh, you, you talked about DC, and, and, I, and I saw the transformation uh, when I went to college there at American University, because in 2005, when I was a freshman, you couldn't get a cab to U Street. No one would pick you up to take you to U Street. Now you got uh, bins and a soul cycle and star. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, uh, and what happened in that part of DC you had some homeowners who, particularly black homeowners, who became very wealthy because of their home values going up. Some got pushed out to PG County and other parts of that area. Here's my thoughts about Cleveland. First and foremost, uh, we have a major issue around the missing middle. We need more workforce and affordable housing in the city. Um, And so uh, I spent a lot of my time trying to convince the legislature to give us more tools at the state level so we can uh, have more tax credit and incentives to incentivize uh, more workforce and affordable housing because we can only do so much with the LIHTC current tax credit. The other thing we're exploring uh, that we need help with with our banking partners is more capital for down payment assistance, particularly in uh, not only our middle neighborhoods, but our opportunity neighborhoods like in Mount Pleasant, Union Miles, Lee Harvard as well too. I would also say um, targeted housing programs to support the public sector workforce to live in the city of Cleveland. Um, I think about you know, offering a teacher's village for CMSD teachers to live in parts of our city with an access to a good quality home so they can be, live in the city where they're teaching. Creative programs like that are all things we're exploring right now at the city. You're welcome. Uh-oh. 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 I'm glad you're changing the bonding things. And, and the MBECB. Chris, you heard that, right? Okay. All right. And get Mr. State of Ohio, too, to take care of it. Um, but really, really, I mean, it's interesting. Dr. Felton at UNCF, and I just want to thank Mayor Bibb, who reached out to me 
to be a sponsor for UNCF. And as I looked around the table, my company, I think, was the only black-owned company that was on that level. And I thank you. We don't know that we can do that. Yeah. We don't know that we could be empowered. If you look at the numbers, 59% um, of white folk are middle class, but compared to 8%. But 20% of blacks are poverty. Dr. Felton said that the difference is our client does not have that financial capacity. Because at the HBCUs, the client are black folks. They're black mm -hmm. kids. They're black families. Typically, we give you know, our tithings to churches and all. How do we change the narrative of that when our income is incomparable to the folks that are around us? What are some great suggestions yeah. for that? Well, I, I am not an expert in personal finance, but I, I would say um, one of the things that, that I learned early is you got to start small and you got to start somewhere. So I remember I was uh, right out of college, I was 22, and an older uh, black mentor of mine said, I want you to do two things. Um, uh, do a 527 for your future children for college and buy life insurance. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was so profound because as I've gotten older and I saw many members of my family pass away, we know, we know you got to pass the hat. Who can pay for the repass? Who can pay for the funeral? Because those basic aspects of financial literacy aren't in place. Um, and by the grace of God, I wanted to make sure my mama was going to be okay if something happened to me, right? And so it's important that we start to have these conversations about wealth building and wealth creation early, particularly for our children. Our children should be learning stocks and bonds in elementary school, right? How to manage a digital checking account in middle school. I still write regular checks, by the way. Um, but that needs to be at the center of our public education system so that as our children get older, they start to accumulate that wealth over time. Yeah. Great to meet you, Mayor Bibb. <laughs> um, quick question. Um, as a business owner in Cleveland um, that I started when I was 19, um, I see a lot of people um, around my age that's getting older. Um, they want to leave, and they want to go start somewhere else or take their ideas somewhere else. Um, my quick question is, how do you... How do young people with ambition position themselves to start having the conversation um, of staying in Cleveland with their plans and ideas? Well, I'm really happy you asked that question. <laughs> um, uh, I see many uh, folks in this room who supported uh, our conference last year called Future Land to really make Cleveland a destination for black and brown uh, entrepreneurs to start a company. Because you shouldn't have to go to Austin, Atlanta, or DC. Right. Silicon Valley. You can do it right here in Cleveland at the fifth of the cost you would do it in, in those other markets. We're going to have our second conference this October, um, and we're also going to be hosting Forbes 30 under 30 right here in Cleveland during that same week. Uh, and so we're trying to change the culture as quickly as we can. I would say don't give up. Be a part of Futureland. Be a part of the movement. If you need help trying to get resources, reach out to me at City Hall. Reach out to Jumpstart or others, but we want to make sure we keep you, we help you grow, because we need you to succeed for our city to succeed long-term. Definitely. I don't mean to hijack the microphone, but um, 
<laughs> What's the conversation look like for a 22-year-old to a 22-year-old or to the 21-year-old or the 19-year-old that wants to, you know, maybe leave after, you know, college or go to another state city for college? What does that conversation look like for me to you, them? You can go to Atlanta, New York, or D.C., be a cog in a wheel. You can be unique <laughs> and different and do it in Cleveland. Yeah. That's yeah. Mayor Vitz. Um, my question to you is, what advice or words of encouragement do you have for young black student leaders on PWI campuses, and how can we bring our community together to push some of these initiatives through? I felt that one. Oh. <laughs> I got to So, um, you know, I used to go to church every Sunday with, with my mom, and I would get all my suits from Diamonds the old suit store. Y'all know I'm sorry, Randall Park Mall? Diamonds, Randall Mall. I gotta, I'm gonna give you context why this story is so important. All right, there, there's an end to this. Um, so I go to DC, I'm at American University in Northwest DC, a fancy part of the city. I'm in my five-piece Steve Harvey suit, <laughs> thinking I'm with my gaiters on, thinking I'm looking good. And, 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 me, and me and the other, um, black men I hung out with on campus, we all, we had the same suit. <laughs> Their moms did the same thing for them. We go to our first party at Howard, and we were like, oh, we got to, we got to, we're not, we're not doing it right. <laughs> so then the I got the tailor suits, you know what I mean? I, I tell you that story it, because I had to find my own community very early, where we would study together, eat together, play basketball on Fridays together, go to church together, and we would hold each other accountable. Um, and we would get involved, but we would also build that family connection. And that was the way I was able to survive by being one of the only black men in my, grad, my, my, my degree program at American University. So I would say, find your community quick. Make sure you, you pour into them, because they're going to pour into you. And, and, and keep holding on and graduate. Because it's worth it at the end. Trust me, it's worth it. Yeah. Hello, Mayor Bibbs. How are hey. you? Hey. Uh, we have a text question. Black and brown professionals have overcome countless barriers to success. Once there, we are asked to change who we are, conform, or speak on behalf of our community and our lived experiences, often without honorariums. Donating time is a time-tested way black, brown communities give back. We love to do it. But at what point does generosity and giving time in the city cross the line into exploitation and tokenization? You want I, I got I'm, I'm going to let her take this one. <laughs> I'm not trying to get in trouble today. Um, for me personally, it's long past time. Um, I think what happens, and, and, <laughs> and Teleandria and I just said yesterday, if they don't leave us black women alone! <laughs> Be because we are asked. We're, and, and if you've got a, a level of expertise in anything, and a skill, and a way with words, and you're an extrovert like me, 
you're pulled on and you're asked to speak and serve and be on a panel and give back and give back again. And my dear husband says to me all the time, you continue to give away your intellectual capital hmm. without any kind of monetary compensation. And so at what time, Connie, are you going to say, what you paying? <laughs> um, and so I'm just making a statement here yeah. because I've got to say to myself, no, I would be happy to come serve. I would be happy to come speak. I would be happy to coach you in your new business. But I don't have the bandwidth, the time, the energy to do that when I am already giving back at my church, through my business, through TSOP Clee, at the Cleveland Foundation. Somebody can pay a sister um, if, you, if you want a little bit of what you see in me. Um, so, so that's my statement. I just, I'll, I'll be, I just wasn't going to say anything. You said it best. note we are going to end on, period. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Mayor Bibb and Connie Hill Johnson for joining us at the City Club. Again, a round of applause for them today. Thank you as well to the Cleveland Black Equity and Humanity Fund for your partnership on today's forum. Today's forum is the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Forum on the Philanthropic Spirit and Community Leadership. James S. Lipscomb was the first executive director of the George Gunn Foundation, chair of the National Council on Philanthropy, and was president of the City Club in 1980. We are grateful for their support of the City Club and conversations on philanthropy that benefit our communities. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by Baldwin Wallace University, Beyond Breakthrough, Cleveland Black Equity and Humanity Fund, the Cleveland Foundation, Cuyahoga Community College, Delta, Al <laughs> Delta Alpha Lambda Foundation Alpha Phi Fraternity, Inc., Huntington, Ideas Stream Public Media, Key Bank, our Hope, Our Future, Social Venture Partners Cleveland, and Youth Opportunities Unlimited. <laughs> Thank you all for being here today. Next Friday, February 24th, Steve Stivers, President and CEO of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, will discuss the Blueprint for Ohio's Economic Future, a comprehensive report that focuses on the key areas for economic growth and improvement for the state. And on Friday, March 3rd, the City Club will welcome U.S. Congressman Dave Joyce of Ohio's 14th District. You can learn about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Mayor Justin Bibb and Connie Hill-Johnson. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club, I am Telianje, and the forum is now closed. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.